0: This podcast is sponsored by FAT, F-A-T-T, a A range of keto on-the-go snacks, including cookies, brownies, chocolate bites, bars, fat jacks and muffins. Fat snacks are delicious, natural and always free from sweeteners, fillers and seed oils. Find fat snacks at www.livefat.com, that's L-I-V-E-F-A-T-T dot com use the code fabulously10 that's one zero to give an extra 10% off one-time purchases not valid on subscribe and save welcome to the fabulously keto podcast aimed at improving health vitality and quality of life eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle I'm Jackie Fletcher, and I'm based in the UK. And
1: I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each
0: week, we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics, which we hope will improve your health and well-being.
1: Many of the guests, like us, came to keto for weight loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits, and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen
0: to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 178 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. I've been keto for nearly seven years, and over the years, I've given thought to animals in the sense that I would no longer feed the birds, bread, or the fish in our pond, and I've gone as far to think that cats and dogs probably shouldn't eat grains. I know my sister feeds her dogs raw food, but I'd never really considered keto food for animals. When Daniel Shuloff approached me, I immediately said yes to having him on the podcast, and here he is. So let me tell you about Daniel. Daniel Shuloff serves as the CEO and founder of Keto Natural Pet Foods, with a vision to establish the world's most substantial, sincere and forward-thinking pet food company. He is an acclaimed expert in companion animal nutrition, addressing key issues for pet owners like obesity, diabetes and cancer. In his roles as an entrepreneur, activist and science writer, Daniel Shuloff is committed to exposing conflicts of interest, dishonest practices and flawed scientific approaches that lead to alarming chronic disease epidemics causing the death of millions of pets each year. I really enjoyed talking to Daniel and finding out about animals and how they should be eating so I hope you enjoy it too. Let's go and hear from Daniel. Welcome, Daniel, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today.
2: It is also fabulous to be with you. Thank you for having me, Jackie. It's nice to meet you.
0: It's good to meet you too. So we always start with where in the world are you?
2: I am in the lovely southwestern United States, a part of our country where where we're in the high desert. It's very arid, and in the summer, it's very hot. I'm not able to do Fahrenheit to Celsius calculations quickly enough to, but in our world, in the Fahrenheit world, it gets into the like 110 degrees. So I think you're talking about like 40 degrees Celsius. It gets very hot in the summer, but now in the autumn, it's lovely. It's cool, but it's sunny and it's not, um, it's just not wintry at all. And so it's lovely. We're in the state of Utah in a city called St. George.
0: Excellent. We've had rain all day.
2: And cold. What part of the UK are you in?
0: I am just outside London, northeast London.
2: Well, as a Arsenal supporter, I am a north London uh I have a little I have a space in my heart for north London myself. <laughs> I lived in London for a short period of time um in another life in my 20s I lived there as part of my legal education and uh loved every minute of it. It was one of the best experiences of my life.
0: Yeah. We have a lot lot of West Ham supporters in this area. So yeah, it's a mixture. London teams get supported around London, wherever you are. So the reason you're here with me today is because you have a really interesting subject to talk about and one that we haven't had before and who knows if we'll have again. So it'd be very interesting to talk to you. So we're going to talk about animals and how they eat and their nutrition. And we know that, I, I'm not a pet owner. I figure that with two boys and a husband, that's enough yeah. animals for me. <laughs> <That> um, <counts. laughs> but we know that when you take your animal to the vet, one of the first things they quite often ask is, what have you been feeding your animal? And doctors don't do the same question. So let's talk about um, animals and how you came to get into animals and animal food.
2: Sure. Um, I, in a former life, as I mentioned before, I was a attorney. Um, I, I worked in a big international law firm, helping corporations fight each other in litigation. And while I was doing that, which is uh, a grind, we sometimes say here, it's a. It's a lovely job in some ways it's very challenging and you work with very smart people and all of that but it's also a very demanding job and I was a single guy in my 20s and I got a dog my first dog I was raised with dogs in my family my, with my mother but um I never had one of my own but I got one and I got very into him and he who is now passed on this is many years ago was a rottweiler a big Male Rottweiler, quintessence if you're familiar with the breed, this is a big guard dog type animal, very muscular, very intense, and very geared up all the time, and with protective instincts. Yeah. And in order to be a responsible pet owner, I took it up. You know, I viewed it as I needed to make sure that he could be a polite member of society, that he was not going to be a liability, that nobody, he was never going to hurt anyone, and that he was going to. Um, you know, channel his urges in productive ways. And so I got very into the idea of exercising him, making sure that I could essentially exhaust him. If you talk to folks who are dog owners, they'll tell you that like daily exercise, exhausting exercise is one of the best ways to help manage behavior. They just Uh get it out, that kind of thing. But I was a lawyer working too much, not around enough to like do every, to devote my whole day to making sure this dog got tired. And so I started researching the ex- the world of like doggy exercise and what is effective for this. And I started learning, this was like, oh, this would have been like 2012. Okay. I started learning about the problem of obesity among pets in the Western world. Now, I- I'm an American and most of the material that I would come to write about because I wrote a book is about the American version of this problem, but really my understanding is that it applies to pets throughout the Western world, that obesity is shockingly common among both dogs and cats that are kept as household pets, and that it is perhaps even more shockingly bad for them. And so it's not, everyone knows that like being fat isn't great, but the extent to which it is bad for the health and life expected lifespan of dogs and cats is kind of surprising. And so, there are two facts that I always give when talking about the extent of this as a problem. Number one is that the majority of dogs and cats in the United States, at least, are overweight or obese. So, the extent mm-hmm. of the problem is it's the norm that if I, you're not a pet owner, but if any one of your listeners, is listening to the show right now. They've got a dog or a cat sitting next to them. If I were a betting person, I would bet, I would have to bet that it's more likely than not that that person's dog is overweight or obese. It's the, you grab the next animal you see on the street, it's more likely to be than not. So very, very common. It's the norm. But the second fact shows how bad it is studies have been done where they essentially take dogs and follow them over the entirety of their lifespan from the time they're puppies until the time that they die. Because unlike people, they live somewhat short lives. And so studies like that can be done at least, it's not easy, but it's like much easier than with people. And what they found is that being just moderately overweight, so not like colossally obese, but just too fat, a little too fat. You go to the vet, the vet's like your dog should lose some pounds. It's so bad for that dog it'll knock its lifespan down on average by more than smoking cigarettes from the time you are 18 until the day you die is for a person. So if you're a, you know, the quintessential unhealthy habit for people, smoking cigarettes is not as bad as being moderately overweight is for a dog or a cat. And it's the norm and that just kind of blew me away. It's like I was in love with my dog, he was my best friend, I was a single guy, and I just like couldn't imagine, how could I, anybody that feels this way let this kind of problem impact their pet? And the explanations that I was hearing when I went to talk to my vet and when I looked at it and I started doing more independent research was that most veterinarians will tell you, that freely admit this is a huge problem, it's the number one veterinary public health issue in the world right now for companion animals this problem of obesity. Well, it w- what they'll tell you it boils down to is owners that either were too lazy to give the animals the exercise that they need mm. or were too stupid to appreciate how bad obesity is for them or were too like weak willed like when the animal begs and it wants to, you know, obviously my dog doesn't have any understanding of obesity. It needs me to manage that for him. But, oh, pet owners are just too weak-willed. We're loving them to death by giving them too much stuff. And none of that resonated with me. That didn't feel like my case. And so I started going deeper into it and trying to test whether those things, those ideas held water and like I said, this was 2012, 2013. And around this time, the, there were not keto podcasts at this time. But I, if you're familiar, there's an American science writer whose name is Gary Taubes. Uh-huh. I imagine you're from, yeah. He, so he had already written his big book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. And I had read it and I found it very persuasive and I found it very interesting. And so there was the, the bones of what would grow into like the low carb keto movement were kind of out there that like foundational texts had been written. And so I started looking at that stuff and trying to understand, does this help to explain in any kind of way this otherwise inexplicable situation that's taking place with dogs and cats? And the deeper I went into it, the more it became clear to me that absolutely, yes, it does, that the veterinary community is not speaking accurately when it tells you that obesity is a problem that's primarily driven by pet owners doing the wrong thing. In reality, what it's being driven by is chronic consumption of dietary carbohydrate by dogs and cats. And it just fascinated me. And I went deeper and deeper into it. I ended up quitting my job as a lawyer so I could write what would become this big 400-page book that I published in uh, 2016 Uh called Dogs, Dog Food, and Dogma. And it tries to make the case that, as I see the world, that Carbohydrate is the real problem of chronic disease among pets in the Western world. And that the only reason we don't all understand that already is because the veterinary community has to a significant degree been misled by corporate interests that have a very, very uh, strong conflict of interest in promoting the healthfulness of dietary carbohydrates for dogs and cats. Carbohydrates play a major role in the pet food ecosystem. And if you blow up the notion that they're perfectly healthy for dogs and cats, you will ruin huge companies. And so those companies have worked very hard to make sure that the veterinary community is towing the party line, knowing it or not. And that's part big part of what I explain in my book.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine that most vets don't even know that because we know that a lot of doctors don't know about low carbohydrate and carbohydrate restriction. And
2: that's right. I mean, it's like it's it is the execution of the misinformation campaign, as it were, in that that kind of corporate interests have executed over the past literally 30 years in hiding the ball about what the science really says about this subject from veterinarians is staggering it is multifaceted incredibly sophisticated incredibly well-funded takes place in the academy in classrooms veterinary nutrition classrooms takes place in practicing clinics and you sympathize with veterinarians you know there's it's case by case but generally speaking my feeling is the one that you described where it's like most of them are absolutely trying their best most of them are very smart people But when you are in the fishbowl, it's hard to see outside of it, to understand what has made the environment that's been given to you. And that's just the reality of what it means to be a vet these days is that corporations have their hands on you very early and throughout the entirety of your practice. And so it's really easy to just not get what's out there.
0: Yeah, I'd imagine throughout the entirety of their practice, but also before that, through
2: veterinary
0: school and Absolutely, they would have been starting yeah. to be influenced at that point, and we know that carbohydrates, as fillers, are great for profits. So it's probably in their interest to to fill it with stuff that's not good for the animal. And if an animal is sick, then that's good for profits too.
2: Well, yeah, it's good for veterinary profits in a way. That it's a cynical uh, perspective, but it's not one that is, it certainly applies in some cases you've got to know. I mean, certainly the, the idea that why carbohydrate, why it's so commonly used in pet food, even more so than in human food products is first of all, the one that you hit on already, the reasons why carbohydrates are used. The first one is the the one you've hit on that they're just incredibly inexpensive at mm-hmm. a calorie of, agriculture produced carbohydrate corn or rice or potato is something like costs the producer something like one tenth of a calorie the cost of a calorie of meat based protein so if you were to take your big bag of pet food and change it from 50 percent carbohydrate which is common to 100 percent animal meat protein ingredients protein and fat you know, you would, the cost for the producer to make that bag of food is going to go up by almost tenfold. So it's not a, this isn't a marginal issue for them. It's an existential issue that like they can't at this point change their recipes to reflect, the nutritional science reality because it blows up the entire cost model. You know, you they have to charge for a bag of dog food three times as much as they're currently charging and the whole business can't just react in that kind of, it's like turning the Titanic, you know, it's like, it takes a long time to adopt new practices like that. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's going to take forever before it's a norm in the world of pet food that products are very low in carbohydrate content. Yeah. seems to.
0: I would imagine that a lot of our listeners who are listening, not all I'm but some have adopted a low carbohydrate lifestyle for themselves but not even considered it for their pets and Do you find that when you're working with people
2: so yeah, so in the United states um one of the ways that the pet food industry has effectively kept the subject of dietary carbohydrates out of the mouths of interested pet owners, sophisticated pet owners that are trying to understand what the science really says and what's the right thing to feed their dog. One of the ways they've done that well is they've shaped the regulatory environment that governs how pet food products are labeled. And in particular right now, I don't know if this is the case in the UK or not, but in the United States, it's the case. When you look at the back of a bag of dog food and you look at the nutritional content, because they have to tell you some amount of what's in there, they will not tell you how much carbohydrate is in there because there is not an affirmative obligation to disclose that information. You're mm-hmm. allowed to hide that from the consumer. And, as, and that's been the case for decades. And so as a result of that the subjects that are like commonly discussed when pet owners are trying to the trends in the market and the the like touchstones that individual consumers talk about and look at when trying to decide their perspective on what's healthy carbohydrates get kept out of the conversation really effectively instead they wind up being around other topics or other subjects that don't have as direct a bearing on health. And so even among people who over, as the keto diet has become such a popular cultural phenomenon over the past five, six years, have become very firm in their like foundation as being keto diet people, you're right, often aren't thinking about it with regards to their pets. I think that in my experience, at least, a lot of folks who own dogs and cats and might not be like, totally um, fluent in the scientific record on the relevant topics will still tell you things like, well, I know my dog or my cat came from wild animals that don't eat any carbohydrate that like wolves, gray wolves, the domestic dogs, genetic ancestors, well, they don't eat any carbohydrates. So it seems kind of unnatural that my dog would eat carbohydrate. So I feed it the good kind of stuff that's more meaty. That's like a very, that kind of distillation is something I hear all the time. And so it's like people have the right instinct around it, but the nature of how the market's been built up over the decades, make it so that folks don't just get like hyper fixated on that and allows them to get misled really easily. And these products that they have a wolf on the bag and meat is the first ingredient. And there's a image of a, you know, an ear of corn with a big red X over it. And it says grain free and all these other things that feel very, this is wolf-like, this is very meaty and suggests. Wrongly, falsely, that it's low in carbohydrate content. That's all very common. And so it satisfies that instinct that people have where they're like, this, yeah, this, this is the kind of thing my dog needs. But in reality, they're kind of hiding the ball. And in reality, there are tons of carbohydrates in there anyway. And so until consumers learn to like look for that topic directly, be really fixated on that nutritional content issue, how much carbohydrate is in there? You're going to have this opportunity for kind of misleading folks really pervasively.
0: So if the, if the the other products put grain-free, what are they loading it with to be filled with carbohydrates?
2: Tubers, potatoes uh, and yeah. potatoes, essentially. Yeah, there are non-grain um, agricultural products that can be turned into powdered, dried, shelf-stable sources of starch. And so, yeah, grain-free arose, in my estimation at least, as a way to hide the ball, it became this very popular market um, phenomenon because it suggests low carbohydrate without saying it exactly. And in reality, it leaves that loophole where you can just fill it up, make it 50% potatoes, and it's still grain-free, but it's packed with carbohydrate.
0: Yeah. So do dogs, let's talk about dogs for a minute. Do they need vegetables?
2: No. So the... um there's two different ways that I can explain why I'm so confident in giving you that answer. One is to talk from an evolutionary perspective. Um, The domestic dog, as I mentioned a second ago is very similar genetically to a different species, the gray wolf, Mm -hmm. but you know, they're, they're so similar that they're only, they're not really technically different species. They, they, if you read a biology textbook, yeah, they're different species and scientists even know genetically where they're different, but they're so similar that they can breed with one another successfully and produce offspring, which to many biologists is the line between one species and another, like an orangutan and a gorilla can't produce a baby if they breed with one another. Well, a dog and a wolf can, and they do. There are hundreds of thousands of these dog wolf hybrids in the United States. So very similar animals. And in fact, they occupied the exact same genetic lineage until about 10,000 years ago. So, from hundreds of millions of years ago until 10,000 years ago, they occupied the exact same lineage. Now, in the last 10,000 years, they split off. And, kind of in two, there, like I said, there have been genome sequencing studies that have been performed that have told, that have helped us understand what makes a dog a dog and a wolf a wolf. And there's kind of two places where they have grown different from one another one is the brain. And that's the one that of course we're all familiar with. Like wolves are quintessential wild animals. They are not domesticable. Like if you live, if you try to make a wolf, a pet, it doesn't happen like that. You can't teach it to sit when you want it to sit and lovingly greet uh, somebody coming into the home for the first time. That's not a thing. The brain is wired differently. We've over generations bred dogs for being docile and trainable. And Uh so they've are very different from wolves. But the second one has to do with carbohydrate metabolism. So what dogs do, that wolves don't do, is they produce this salivary uh, enzyme that you and I produce as well called amylase. And amylase functions, it's in in your saliva and throughout the digestive system, And what it does is it breaks down starch molecules. So carbohydrates, all carbohydrates, I'm sure you know, are composed of chains of glucose molecules. And so Mm -hmm. complex carbohydrate, a bunch of different glucose molecules, long chains, simple carbohydrate, just a couple of molecules of glucose. But ultimately what that stuff gets broken down into during digestion prior to being absorbed into the body is they all get broken down into the individual glucose molecules, yes. right? That's why when we eat a carbohydrate rich meal meal, blood glucose goes way up because essentially all that carb gets broken down into glucose, floods the bloodstream as glucose. And amylase helps us change these long chains into individual glucose molecules. And it's like, you know, it's a, um, if you put a piece of bread in your mouth and hold it there for a while, it'll start to taste sweet. And what that is, is your salivary enzymes breaking down, amylase, breaking down the starch carbohydrate molecules into glucose and you can taste the glucose like sugar. Wolves don't produce it. Dogs over the past 10,000 years have evolved the capacity to produce it. And so what that means is that wolves, we know today, and because of this amylase thing, throughout their entire history, consume zero 0.0% 0.0% of their calories from carbohydrates. They don't eat any. And they do that's their whole that you know in the history of the species. And so when someone, and of course, vegetables, your question, I do it. Do dogs need vegetables? Vegetables obviously are composed primarily of carbohydrate as opposed to protein and fat. Whereas animal foods, the only thing that wolves eat are protein and fat. So, which gets to the second reason why we know very certainly that dogs do not need to eat vegetables is because the scientific community over pets, dogs and cats have been kept as pets for 40, 50, uh, excuse me, the modern veterinary community has been performing scientific studies to understand what these animals need nutritionally for 40, 50 years for like, and that record is not nearly as robust as in the human world, but it's still there. It's pretty sophisticated. And as a result of it, regulators and scientific organizations can tell you dog needs this much protein for per pound of body weight in order to avoid deficiency diseases. It needs this much calcium in order to avoid deficiency diseases, all the different vitamins and minerals. And while they've worked all that stuff out and it's like baked into the regulation of pet food, like you can't sell pet food in the United States unless the nutritional profile meets all those requirements. The one place where there are no, no requirements at all are carbohydrate because they don't need it. There's no evidentiary basis that says, these animals need this in order to do anything. They can digest it, just like you and I can digest ice cream and donuts and whatever, but they don't need it. And they do just as well without it as they do with it.
0: So do they have pet food nutritional guidelines?
2: So not in, in the United States, the main organization that provides guidelines is our food and drug administration. And they, among other things, publish guidelines, recommendations, and mandate what packaged foods need to disclose on the label in terms of nutritional content. And that also functions as like a guideline because they have percentage reflections. Like it'll say like, this product contains um 35 grams of uh fat, and that represents X percentage of the daily recommended intake for an adult male or something like that. In the world of pet food, like I said before, in order to sell it in any serious way, it has to comply with certain nutritional profiles, but they really function as like, in most cases, they're like minimums. You have to meet the minimums and have it at least that much. So there's very, very little guidance from government bodies or like trustworthy, um, like think tanks and research organizations as to what's an optimal kind of canine or feline diet. They won't, they'll tell you, well, you need to make sure you give them at least this much of all these things to prevent deficiency diseases. And that's kind of where it stops from there. It's, it gets much murkier in terms of like who recommends what, um, and it doesn't look a lot like, you know, our, our US FDA has a bunch of different ways that it expresses its recommendations. They have a thing they call My Plate, and it's a diagram of a plate of food that's broken off into food groups. Nothing like that exists in the the doggy and kitty world.
0: Okay, and so for for dogs, for example, are we still looking at similar proportions as humans? So mostly fat with some protein or do they have a different, um, need in terms of how much protein to fat?
2: Yeah. So the number of like the amounts of both fat and protein are essential nutrients for these animals. So if you don't feed your dog any fat at all, it will get sick. If you don't feed it any protein at all, it'll get sick. So both of them have threshold requirements to avoid deficiency diseases for optimization. You know, that that's kind of we these days, like the regulations evolved from a time when pets weren't treated really as family members. And so what they absolutely needed to consume in order to avoid deficiency diseases was sort of like what made sense in terms of like regulating what these guys are going to be fed or like what kind of commercial products are going to be sold. But these days, for most pet owners who consider their animals part of the family, that's not really what we're trying to do when we're picking out what food we ought to feed to them. We're, we're trying to pick out what's optimal. I want to improve my dog's health, keep my dog as healthy as possible, help it avoid disease as much as possible, help it have the life longest lifespan that I can. To that end, what I believe the evidence suggests is that. Essentially, you should feed as much protein as you can, enough fat to meet the dietary requirement. And that's kind of at a very high level, broad level, what I believe is like the groundwork, the foundation for the right kind of diet for dogs and cats. And the reason I say express it that way is because you're not going to find commercial products that contain as much protein as the garden variety gray wolf eats anywhere like if i say to you just feed as much protein as possible it's not going to be as much as a wolf eats you just can get as close to that mark as you can Mm -hmm. um the pathophysiology for why that kind of recommendation supports optimal health essentially has to do with what protein is used for within the body there are however folks who believe that For different therapeutic reasons, we might want to put a dog into ketosis as deep a state of ketosis as possible. I I have people that I talk to all the time that for one reason or another, often having to do with, excuse me, um, treating cancer, which is obviously very common in, in pets in the Western world as well. They're like, I want to get my dog into ketosis as deep ketosis as possible. And to, if that is your goal then it, is, it looks very much like it looks for people. It's like not just eliminate carbohydrate or reduce it as much as possible, also up fat content as much, that will put a dog into deeper ketosis, restrict calories outright. There's like a, a variety of other things. Um, for me, the most persuasive kind of line of thinking is that mother nature over hundreds of millions of generations has gotten good at helping animals consume, like and, until we start messing with the, our human plans around what they've evolved to do, they tend to avoid chronic disease quite well. And in the case of the domestic dog, that means feeding it a diet that's mostly protein and the rest of it from fat and mm. has balanced micronutrient profiles to make sure that they don't get deficiency diseases.
0: So how did you come to start making pet food?
2: Well, when I wrote my book, I, you know, like I said before, there are two main theses. There's one that's like, this cultural kind of societal one. That's like, why are all these vets not saying what's accurate about this science? But then the other one is the scientific case. It's just this thesis that is carbohydrate is the devil for dogs and cats. Well, if you read that in my book and you felt persuaded by it, or if you were just, you arrived at that conclusion on your own, you got into keto diet for yourself, said, you know what? I It is the right idea for me to feed my dog, a low carb diet. As of 2016, 2017, you did not have great options, at least Mm -hmm. in the United States, at least in the United States. I'll speak for that perspective for now. You kind of had two different options to do. If you're like, I want to feed my dog as little carbohydrate as possible. You could feed it a kibble product that was as low in carbohydrate as you could find, right? You could find the lowest carbohydrate kibble. So kibble, you're not a dog owner, but you probably know this anyway, is the kind that's like the sold in big bags and it's pellets and it's shelf stable. It's dried out. It's very low moisture. Um, and historically, when, since kibble has been invented, it's always used a lot of carbohydrate in it. And it's not just because it's cheap. It's also because it's like functionally useful in making the product. It's like um, with your own low carb eating, maybe from time to time you thought, and you can find products like this being sold commercially now, but like low carb bread oh, it would be great if I could have a bread product that didn't have the carbohydrate in it. It's kind of hard to do because like the flour that we put into uh, the the uh, dough for baking bread is there for a reason. And it's not just because it's cheap. It's because it does something that makes it into bread. When you heat starch up, it gelatinizes and it holds those other ingredients together. It's what makes them coalesce and if you you try to bake bread without starch it just falls the dough wants to fall apart it doesn't hold together and kibble's made in in a lot of ways the same kind of way and so starch helps to hold it together and so as of 2016 2017 if you asked pet food folks well can i make kibble without carbohydrate they'd just be like no like i don't know why you'd want to do that it doesn't matter it's healthy for the animal they'd say of course as well but then they'd be like but you can't do it anyway it'll just fall apart And so the best you could find at that period, if you were going to feed a kibble was like 30% carbohydrate, which is like, at that point was like very low, you know, more commonly 50%. That's not a great answer. That's still a lot more, a lot more more carbohydrate than they would eat in the wild. Um, your second option was you could feed a non-kibble product and because that doesn't like, you're not essentially baking that you're not heating that up and doing the same, like making nuggets thing, um, those kinds of products sometimes are really, truly low in carbohydrate content. There are raw products that are sold commercially, either frozen or freeze dried. They don't get cooked the way the kibble does. And so starch hasn't been a part of it. So they've been making it. So many of them are almost all meat, some yeah. of them at least. Mm-hmm. And so you could feed a product like that to your dog. But the problem with those is because they're not low moisture they're not shelf stable. So they'll spoil if you don't keep them refrigerated or frozen. And so they get to be very expensive. And so if you have a little dog and not very expensive, like, you know, 25% more than kibble, but like five times as much, you know, Um, on a, they're they're like unitized very differently. You know, you can buy a bag of kibble, like, uh, you know, 12 kilos, but it, that you don't the equivalent of that doesn't exist with raw products they sell them in smaller units that kind of thing so like the sticker shock as we say in the US isn't really profound it's like oh this is 80 dollars this is 80 dollars but you're getting a quarter of the amount of food with one of those yeah. so they're very very expensive if you have a little dog not that big a deal it's difference between 50 cents a day and 2 dollars and 50 cents a day i have not a little dog. My dog weighs 170 pounds. He's a St. Bernard. He is huge. He's as big as a dog can be. And the difference in feeding him kibble versus raw would be the difference between like $10 a day and $50 a day. So it's like a complete, wow. it, it's a non starter. Yeah. And so that's the world you were in 2016, 2017. You could pick one of the, one of those, neither of which are a great option. And so I set out to try to make kibble without the carbohydrate, just like Lots of folks who make human consumption keto foods, keto breads and tortillas and whatever else have figured out ways to do that in the human world. We set out to figure out a way to do it in the doggy world. That is what we did in 2017. And we make um, very, you know, less than 5% carbohydrate kibble products. Um, Our company is called Keto Natural Pet Foods. Our product line is called Ketona. And we've been selling it for about six years now. And it does incredibly well.
0: Did you have any challenges when trying to get the food together to make it work?
2: Yeah. So the the main there's and they exist on the the process of engineering pet food products it has a lot of different components to it but the primary one that we had to solve for was getting it to hold together without the starch. That's kind of the squaring the circle of making pet food without carbohydrate is can you get it to hold together when you put it through the what's called extrusion process that's like the type of method that's used to make kibble they like heat up the dough it's it's a lot like baking they like heat up the dough using really hot steam then they cut it into little nuggets and then dry it out basically and um yeah ba- finding other types of sources of binding that aren't digestible carbohydrate is functionally it was kind of like the solution for the exercise was like, there are indigestible fibers. They're technically carbohydrate, but they don't get absorbed by the dog's body. They don't get broken down. They just pass through the animal during digestion. Some of those have a binding quality. There are animal products, animal ingredients, collagen and gelatin have Binding qualities to them. The size of the kibbles plays a role in how much binding force is needed. Um, and so that kind of thing in a, a long period of trial and error of producing something being like, oh, the nutritional content here is right on, but it's not holding together. It's becoming a powder. We got to go back to the drawing board. And it took us about a year to dial it in. And now we've got a good backbone understanding of what all of our recipes need to get them to hold together. And so now we're expanding the product line to different sources of protein, like seafood proteins and poultry proteins, that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, it wasn't easy.
0: So how different, when you say pet food, are you um, creating food for cats as well as dogs?
2: You know, we're not. So here's, we don't market them for cats and there's a, not so sexy reason for that that's pretty commonsensical once you think about it for a little bit, which is that, like we're a startup. We've been at it for six years, and so mm-hmm. we're, we're scrapping. We're not like a thriving, huge business that's just floating along. And in the startup world, pet start pet pet food startup world, you get all the dog people first before you do cats. and the reason and that's just like the way it goes. And the reason for that, Is that like my Saint Bernard? We have a cat. The cat weighs five pounds. The Saint Bernard weighs 170 pounds. So, for me to acquire one cat customer, I mean one dog customer, like if I just got one customer that feeds the amount of food my dog needs, that's 30 something cat customers. That and so economically, I have to get those people first to make the model work, and then you expand to to make cat products. It's kind of the way that it goes. That being said, the nutritional requirements of dogs and cats are not wildly different. They are different in some ways. And essentially they boil down to like, a dog is somewhat better at pulling nutrition from carbohydrate, non-animal sources than a cat is. Like a cat, there's an amino acid called taurine that's really only found in meat and a dog can produce taurine endogenously. If you feed it enough of other things, it'll make taurine. Cats don't do that very well. So you have to feed that to a cat. But like our products are so high in meat. They're so low in carbohydrates, so high in meat protein that they meet all those requirements. And so when we have customers that are like, I've been feeding your product to my dog for a really long time. Can I feed it to my cat? The answer is yes. I And I do, that's what we feed to our cat. And it meets all the cat nutritional profile. But it's like we don't market it that way. Yeah, I'm not trying to like it's kind of off-label use to to do that. Okay,
0: so for pet owners, does and uh, with they're feeding their animals carbohydrate, they're getting it from the food that they're buying, they're purchasing, but also they're feeding animals from the food that they're eating, oh. or maybe used to eat, or maybe other members of their family eat, even if they're not. Even if they're low carb, are the animals having these blood sugar roller coasters that we see as humans? And are they having, and is this why we're seeing a lot of animals with Western chronic diseases?
2: Yes, and yes, full stop. Um, The biochemical metabolic nuts and bolts of what happens in your body when you ingest rehydrate is almost identical in the dog world. It's just a matter of degree. It's not like the whole story of carbohydrate molecule comes in. It gets broken down into glucose during digestion. It gets absorbed into the bloodstream as glucose, which causes blood sugar levels to go up, which causes insulin secretion, which drives the glucose into fat among other tissues. All that nuts and bolts runs exactly the same in dogs and cats. So that's a hard yes. And it is, um, and so sorry that let me tell you it, it's also a hard yes with regard to your second question which is is this why we see so much chronic disease like mm-hmm. diseases of civilization in dogs and cats Abs- i mean there there's one thing that all of those most common diseases have in common and that is carbohydrate metabolism when it whether it's obesity which I make the case for as clearly as I can in my book, it's it's like an undeniable scientific record that carbohydrates make dogs and cats fatter than other nutrients. It's like in, in um, humans, it's actually kind of like the reason that there's any room for debate over whether carbs do or don't make you fat in the scientific community is because it's hard to get human subjects to participate in the kind of research that you need to do to really definitively answer these questions like that it's very simple to draw up the kind of study that you would need to do to test the theory hypothesis that do- that carbohydrate makes you fat you essentially just put people in two different groups and have them do everything in their world is exactly the same as one another with one exception which is that one group eats more of their calories from carbohydrate and one group less everything else exactly the same same number of carbohydrates same lifestyle everything else the same and then you feed them those two different diets for a period of months and then look at what happens That's hard to do because people don't want to restrict themselves to one diet, live in a study environment, like what they call a metabolic ward. So you can tell exactly who's burning how many calories through, excuse me, activity. It's hard to do. In the world of dogs and cats, it's really easy. And so it's been done many times. They house these animals in laboratory settings they can very easily be like, you're eating this, you're eating this. And so they, they've done this study a half dozen different times where they feed two subsets exactly the same number of calories and house them in exactly the same conditions. And the only thing that's different is one group eats more carbs and one group eats less carbs. Every single time the study has been done, the same thing happens, which is the dogs that eat carbohydrate get fat and the dogs that don't eat carbohydrate don't get fat. Mm. and So it's clear as day that it is the cause of obesity. But it also, as I'm sure you had talked about countless times, that carbohydrate consumption has plenty of the just as logical link to some of the most other common chronic civilization diseases, diabetes and cancer, most notably. And cancer in the doggy and kitty world, at least, is like it, that the scientific record is not as well developed. It's like there is a, in my mind, a pretty logical link between you know, tumors like to eat glucose, basically, and carbohydrates make you make you have high blood sugar. So makes sense that you starve the tumor by starving it of glucose. I get it. It's not been like, as the way I just described the science and the obesity world, it doesn't look like that in the doggy and kitty world first with regard to cancer. But diabetes is it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable in the human in like the, the, the United States, at least, what the standard of care for a dog with diabetes looks like. It's like the veterinary community is so misled on this, that like the standard of care, if a dog comes in with diabetes, comes into your clinic, what you will do most often, if you're a veterinarian, is you will prescribe it a dietary regimen, a prescription only food for dogs with diabetes made by this huge US pet food company called Hills Pet Nutrition. The product is 40% digestible carbohydrate. So you dump sugar into the blood of the animal every time you feed it. And yeah. that's it. And so we have, you know, our product is 5% dietary carbohydrate. It's not prescription only anybody can buy it. Our, the, a huge chunk of our customer base is folks whose dogs have diabetes. Cause they're like, they're very used to, they measure the dog's blood sugar, just like people with diabetes measure their own blood sugar. They administer insulin shots, just like human diabetics have to administer insulin shots. And so they're very used to evaluating how much insulin do I need? What does my dog's blood sugar look like? They, every time they switch to, as you can imagine, a product with only 5% digestible carbohydrate, the blood sugar comes down. They use less, they need less insulin. And it's just like, wow. And still the veterinary community is just like, eat this 40% dietary carbohydrate. It's just like, mind blowing, mind.
0: Same with humans. (laughs)
2: It is. I mean, but it's like in in the United States, it's kind of at a point where it's like there are still factions of the medical community that will defend what seem like very outdated perspectives on nutritional management of diabetes, where they're like clearly influenced by the types of organizations that folks like us understand really well. But like there to a large degree, the medical community has kind of come around. to like, wow, if somebody is good about eating a low carb diet or a zero carb diet and they have diabetes, it will keep that diabetes under control. Like it will make a colossal impact on them. That's just like, that is such a fringe community in the veterinary world. It's almost like negligible. It's like Mm -hmm. no one at all. It happens every day where it's just like, yep, feed them this product that's got twice as much carbohydrate as protein or fat. That's what it needs if it has diabetes and they people spending their whole paycheck on uh insulin Mm.
0: so how can people find out more about you about your products i mean i'm assuming they're only available in the u.s at the moment you know
2: they are they are they're like um i don't know how many of your listeners are over on our side of the lake but a um, lot lot. okay well good so those folks will have no problem we're available through whatever online channel you otherwise would buy your pet through from. You can buy it from us directly. You can buy it from Amazon. There's a big pet retailer called Chewy Petco. There's, you can get it wherever. It's not hard to find. Our website is keto natural mm-hmm. If you go there, a lot of the subjects I've talked about today are I, you know, I wrote a book. I like writing about stuff. And there's just like a lot of material, informational material, not just about our products, but about these health subjects on the site and so you can read and really like improve your knowledge base by going there if you want to read my book if you're into learning about pet food at an intense level 400 big big page big book um it's called dogs dog food and dogma you can we'll even give you like an e-copy if you i don't think people really use e-readers anymore very much but if you do we'll give you one it's cuz it's free for us to give out through my through our uh, company if you go to our website but you can also buy paper copies through amazon and all the major booksellers so it's called dogs dog food and dogma and um yeah i'm easy to find through the company and that that's probably the best way to reach me i'm not a, a very active social media person but i um deal with our our customers and people very directly
0: excellent daniel mm-hmm. we always ask our Guess that are talking around human nutrition to leave us with three top tips. I'm going to ask you to leave us with three top tips for animal owners.
2: Yeah. I think that the most, the one that sticks out to me the most is when you're trying to decide what is healthy for your dog, I'd encourage people to focus on nutritional content. And it seems very obvious because in the keto community, that's sort of how we think about nutritional matters as we go numbers, what are my macros, protein, fat, carbohydrate that's a fringe thing when shopping for pet food at least in the United States. what typically people look at is what ingredients are in here are they ingredients that register for me as healthy or unhealthy where is this product made? what kind of company made this product what is the what are, is it grain free or not grain free? the focus on actual nutritional content is minimal and that's exactly backwards it ought Hmm. to be your focus and so i'd encourage listeners to start there and use your you know make your evaluation based on that the second thing i would say is that it's undeniable that like like we all anyone's pet owner wants to do right by their animal they want them to be around as long as possible the one thing that will move the needle the most other than like is your food poisoning your dog or giving it a deficiency disease? The one thing that you can do nutritionally that will move the needle the most on your dog's lifespan, average expected lifespan is leanness. Keep it as lean as possible. with people, it's hard. I believe I was telling you, Jackie, before we began recording, I believe in the efficacy of keto diets for people and keeping us lean. It's hard for me, at least I do a lot of exercise and like, I am a, I consume a lot and ice cream is delicious and other carbohydrate rich things are delicious. And I have to exert willpower to like, that's not hard with dogs and cats. It's like, you're making those decisions for them and you can keep them Olympic athlete lean without them. They don't have to devote their whole life to being that way. Like my dog is very, he looks like a bodybuilder because he's very lean and, that will happen very naturally if you take the carbohydrate out of its diet. And so, and that is like what I would say is the second really important thing. It's just like what is considered normal in the world of dogs and cats is not that lean. So you're not striving for normal. You should strive for like, I want my dog to look like a Olympian, Qu- like what a doggy Olympian would look like because that's totally accomplishable. Without It's no harder than keeping your dog a normal weight and it'll move the needle a ton. So, um,
0: can I ask so if um if they're feeding their dog a low carbohydrate food, say your food, for example, could they give them more food and still and the the animal will remain lean, as in if the dog is hungry a... or doesn't have muscle but is thin,
2: yeah, so maybe you need can't... to give them your food you, like I said before, the record is really clear that if you feed dogs, the same number of calories as one another, but less carbohydrate, they will get leaner. They will lose body fat, all else being equal. Um, and so what that means is that, yeah, you can feed somewhat more calories than Mm -hmm. if you feed relatively few calories of carbohydrate, whether that amounts to a different amount of food is somewhat of a different subject. And it's like, a cup of one kibble and a cup of another kibble might contain really different amount of calories. And it's not just about the macros, the moisture, the size of the product, all those things influence that. And so it's not quite as clean as that where it's like, but generate, you can certainly feed somewhat more calories while keeping the animal lean with a uh, carbohydrate restriction. Um, and, you know, like I said before, if just as I believe that in essence, like body fat is kind of like poison, and body muscle mass is kind of like medicine, mm-hmm. you ought to try to make sure that the animal is not just thin or is not thin, but is lean. Like it should right. be muscular. If your animal is losing muscle mass, that is not the same thing. If it's losing weight but it's coming, muscle, that's not a good thing. And yeah. so, feeding enough protein that it, that's not a thing is important. And I'd say the third big take home other than keep your dog as lean as you possibly can. Essentially that, that like rule applies in 999 out of a thousand cases, just that it's that simple a rule, just make it as lean as possible without losing muscle mass, um, and focus on macros. And then the third thing I would say is like, give it a bout of daily exercise of some, some fashion. Like I I'm a really busy person. I do not devote my dogs have they get exercise every day it is not time intensive they do not do incredible stuff like that but they get their 30 minutes of like something every day and it's not really you can make a dog very lean without doing that like they you can absolutely keep a dog lean without giving it a great deal of exercise but building muscle is something that comes most with like you have to supply the dietary building blocks but you also have to go through certain kinds of activities but most importantly of all, the animals love it. Like it's really good for them. It does yeah. help modify their behavior. And so yeah, I know that that's not something everybody can do. Some people have physical restrictions, time restrictions, make it hard to exercise their animal, but it's real good for them and they really like it. So if you can make that happen, I would suggest that as well.
0: Sounds like three good t- t- tips.
2: Oh, I yeah, that. It's Sounds kind of pretty obvious tips. in a way, but hopefully that like giving some of the foundation for why they are these common sense things are are powerful and really helpful is is at least um enlightening for some of your listeners
0: yeah great thank you daniel thank you for being with me today
2: yeah thank you i'm happy to have been here it was an enjoyable conversation i'm happy to come back if you ever there's a million more things to say so anytime you want i love doing this great thank you thank you jackie
0: search for fabulously keto on facebook our facebook page is called fabulously keto and you can follow us there or you can follow us on twitter our handle is fabulously keto or follow us on instagram fabulously keto one did you enjoy the show let us know you listened by tagging us in your insta story or instagram post using the handle fabulously keto one and the hashtag tfkp